as you're seated, if you would grab your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 863. Last October, we began working our way through the book of Luke, and then we took some time off at the beginning of this calendar year to think through and preach through some of the CCF priorities. Then over the summer, we took some time away to to look at the Psalms and to learn a little bit more about what we do, why we do what we do when we gather. And now we are back, like an old friend, in the Gospel of Luke. Since it's been about 12 weeks or so since we've been in Luke, let me bring us up to speed just by hitting some of the highlights. So Luke, the physician and missionary church planter and ministry partner of the Apostle Paul, is the author of the book of Luke. He is writing to a man named Theophilus, who was an underwriter of sorts for this project, this research and writing project. Interestingly, Theophilus's name, as you may recall, means lover of God. And so there is a true sense in which this book is not just addressed to Theophilus, but it's addressed to all who love God, and so it has meaning for all of us. The purpose of Luke's writing is to give certainty concerning the things that Theophilus had been taught, and by extension, certainty concerning the things we all have been taught. It's to give us certainty in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And Luke's process for writing was to carefully investigate and closely follow the the life and the ministry of Jesus and to interview eyewitnesses and to read accounts and to do that not only of Jesus' life but to research the the growth and the, the development of the church for an extended time so that he might be able to write an orderly account orderly account of his findings, which is what we have in the gospel of Luke. And so we're picking back up this morning in Luke chapter 7, Lord willing, we're going to continue to follow the gospel of Luke by and large until we come to Christmas. In the beginning of chapter 7, which you will recall vividly, we addressed this back in May, Jesus has recently healed the servant of a Roman military official. And now we're going to pick up in verse 11. The word of the Lord says this. Soon afterwards, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. 
The fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. There are lots of ways we could approach the text this morning. What I want to do, if you're an outline person, hopefully this will help you. I want to essentially look at three themes that we see in this section. So we're going to kind of just follow through the text, theme one, theme two, and then theme three. So our first theme that I want us to look at this morning is the effects of sin. The effects of sin. We could hardly imagine a sadder circumstance in Jesus's In the middle of his ministry, he enters into the town of Nain. Nain was a small town, a relatively insignificant town. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, Its ruins, some of its ruins are potentially located in southern Galilee, which is where archaeologists think that Nain was. Jesus enters this small, insignificant town, and immediately upon arriving through the city gate, he encounters a funeral procession. Now, every death is tragic, but the death of a young person is especially heart-wrenching. And this is a child who has died, a young person who has died. In fact, this was the only child. And the parent, the mother of this child, was widowed. So you can see it's just layer upon layer of grief here. This was a death. This was the death of a child. This was the death of an only child. This was the death of a child who was the only child of a widowed mother. This poor dear widow is about to bury her only son, which also means that there will now be no one to provide for her, no one to support her in her old age. There was no male to provide protection for her or to carry on the family name. So a widow, as this widow here in the first century, was even more dependent upon her male children than a widow would be in our culture today. So we should rightly feel the brokenness and the hopelessness that exists in this widow's life and perhaps in many in the crowd who are gathered. But this also is a reminder of the brokenness that sin brings. Every time we experience death, every time we experience suffering and tragedy and trials, it's a reminder not only that our world is broken, but it's broken on account of sin. Martin Luther wrote, When you hear of death, you must think not only of the grave and the coffin and the horrible manner in which life is separated from the body and how the body is destroyed and brought to naught, but you must also think of the cause by which man is brought to death and without which death and that which accompanies it would be impossible, namely sin and the wrath of God on account of sin. And the same is true for us today. When we look around and we, we see the effects of sin, we see brokenness and loss, we all experience suffering and pain and sickness and discord and injustice and insecurity. 
In fact, these things are so ingrained into our existence that it's easy sometimes to forget that those things are foreign to the way in which things are supposed to be. They're foreign to the way God created the world. And these things were not a part of God's original creation. And for the Christian, they will not be a part of our eternity. Rather, the brokenness that we see and experience is the consequence of God's curse on our world. Which itself is a consequence of humanity's treason against God. Sin is to blame. Our sin and the sin of a fallen and broken world. And God has cursed the world so that we would rightly see that this is not the way things are supposed to be. So every brokenheartedness, every longing that goes unfulfilled, every hurt and ache that we experience should rightfully remind us, in fact, is a gift in itself from God, that this is not the world that God created as he created it. Rather, it's broken as a result of sin, and it should cause us to long for the remedy, to long for the only one who can rightly fix our fallen and broken world. As Jesus stood by and watched this sad procession, he was witnessing the tragic condition of a lost and dying humanity. But unlike you and I, who are powerless, relatively powerless, to do anything to fix it, Jesus was not powerless, which leads us to our second theme this morning, which is the word of Christ. The word of Christ. I want to just notice a few things that Jesus does here, some responses of Jesus that we have in the text. First, notice that Jesus sees. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. Now that might seem like a fairly insignificant point, but all ministry begins with seeing, begins with not just looking at needs, but seeing needs, observing needs. In fact, with all that Jesus had to do, with all the ministry that he could have done, with all the pressing things that were on his radar, Jesus stops and he notices. He stops and he sees. Second thing to notice about Jesus' response is notice that Jesus has compassion on this dear widow. Again, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Matthew Henry, the theologian of a bygone era, wrote, Jesus' eye affected his heart. That's good. (laughs) Jesus' eye affected his heart. He saw, and what he saw moved him to compassion. In fact, this is the consistent character of Christ throughout his life and throughout his ministry. Johnny Erickson Tata writes that every time she reads through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, she writes, there's Jesus hanging out with those who suffer, hanging out with those who mourn, hanging out with someone else with a handicap, hobnobbing with people with disabilities, reserving his most gentle touch for the blind, and counseling the fathers of little boys with seizures. She continues, he seemed to go out of his way to strike up conversations with guys who were paralyzed on straw mats by the pool in Bethesda. 
Since Jesus was not caught up with his own concerns, he was able to fully and selflessly enter into someone else's suffering. And Jesus was fully able to enter into someone else's suffering. And that's significant because Jesus Christ never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. His heart still beats with compassion as he did when he saw this dear widow. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong today as it was then. R.C. 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 Sproul, not R.C. Sproul, J.C. Ryle, different time period, same message, writes, there is no friend or comforter who can be compared to Christ. In all our days of darkness, which must needs be many, let us first turn for consolation to Jesus, the Son of God. He will never fail us. Never disappoint us. Never refuse to take interest in our sorrows. He lives who made the widow's heart sing for joy in the gate of Nain. He lives to receive all laboring and heavy laden ones if they will only come to him by faith. He lives to heal the brokenhearted and to be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And he lives to do greater things than these one day. He lives to come again to his people, that they may weep no more at all, and that all tears may be wiped from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who is compassionate, who weeps with those who weep, who mourns with those who mourn, who cares about what you're suffering, what you're going through, what you're dealing with, even right now. He identifies with us in our suffering. But then he also calls those of us who are his to extend the compassion we have received from him to others. We have a mission, we have a job to do. 2 Corinthians 1.4 teaches that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able then to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we have received. So we are comforted from God in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our suffering, so that then we may be conduits of comfort, so that we may be able to extend that same comfort that we have received from God in our suffering to others who are suffering. And notice, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.4, we are called to extend this comfort to those who are in any affliction. So amid the temptation to want to qualify our comfort, or to want to limit our comfort to those who are suffering circumstances not of their own making, we are called to extend that kind of comfort to those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we have received from God. In other words, the comfort that we have received is the comfort we are called to give. And when we give it, we are following the example of Jesus Christ. So to be like Christ means to be drawn to people who suffer. To have compassion for widows, brokenhearted, 
lonely and the disenfranchised. One author writes, this means noticing people in pain, grieving parents, lonely widows, the chronically ill, any and all who suffer. It means entering into their situation with sympathy. It means giving them the freedom to grieve without presuming to tell them how they ought to feel. It means showing them the Savior who died for them and who lives for them and who loves them still. What a difference it makes when people who are suffering meet Jesus on the road of suffering. And this is what happens when we reach out to them with the compassion of Christ. When we say, I've come to comfort, I've come to help, I've come to encourage. I've come just to simply be with, simply to mourn with, simply to cry with. And the, the way that I'm able to do this is because God has been compassionate with me. The Holy Spirit has comforted me as the comforter. And so I, through the Holy Spirit, am seeking to comfort you. And we may not use those words. We might show up at someone's door and proclaim that. But that's the ethos with which we provide comfort. So Jesus sees, Jesus has compassion. Then also notice that Jesus speaks. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. So the buyer was the, what this young man was being carried on, a stretcher of sorts. We're not told what the bearers, the carriers of this stretcher were thinking. They're probably thinking, what in the world are you doing touching the stretcher? Don't you know you could make yourself ceremonially unclean? But Jesus speaks, notice verse 14, and Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus speaks. We don't have recorded for us anyone asking Jesus for help. We don't have recorded for us the fact that they expected Jesus to help, but still Jesus speaks. In fact, this widow doesn't even exhibit faith in Jesus, and yet Jesus chooses to act. And his action is to speak. In other words, the same voice that John 1 tells us spoke all things into existence is the same voice that speaks. The same voice that in short order will calm the raging sea speaks. And his word creates life. His word creates life. Look at verse 15. And the dead man sat up. And began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. So we should be rightly shocked by this. In a moment, in a nanosecond, a dead heart begins beating once again. With no kind of loss of heart function. In an instant, lungs that had long ago ceased expanding and contracting, in an instant begin expanding and contraction. Blood that had ceased to flow throughout the body in an instant begins to flow with no sign of gangrene, no, no loss of feeling in the extremities because of the time that he had been dead. In an instant, God the Son restores this young man to life without any sign of decay. It's because Jesus' words 
bring life from the dead. Jesus has the divine authority to keep death in its place. In fact, to do more than that, he has the authority to rescue life from the jaws of death, to bring life out of the very core of death. Philip Ryken writes, a dramatic confrontation was taking place at the front of that funeral procession. A collision between life and death, an unstoppable force, was meeting a seemingly immovable object. The grieving had come out to bury their dead, but when the funeral met Jesus, death had to stop in its tracks. When he put out his hand, it was as if to say, death, you will come this far, but no further. Now let me step aside for a second. You may be thinking to yourself, okay, wait a minute. Maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe he had just passed out. Maybe the crowd was wrong. The mother was wrong. People that had gathered, they were wrong. Scripture was wrong. He he hadn't really died. Questions like that have been asked from time to time. Sigmund Freud in a previous generation wrote that miracles in the Gospels, he said, contradict everything that has been taught by sober observation. And miracles betray too clearly the influence of the activity of the human imagination. So Freud said, if you believe in miracles, it's because you aren't thinking soberly, you're not thinking clearly and carefully, and it's because you have an overactive imagination. Is that what's happening here? Well, I think this is where it's helpful to remember that our author is Luke, and he spells out for us in the first few verses of chapter 1, not only his, his, his purpose, but his process. He was a sober observer. In fact, he tells us in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that after carefully and thoroughly consulting eyewitnesses, he prepared an orderly account to establish certainty in the gospel. And remember, Luke was a professionally trained physician. So when Luke, the professionally trained physician, writes, he was dead, guess what? He was dead. In fact, this is one of three times that Jesus, while on earth, physically raised the dead to life. Jesus had a bit of a habit of doing this. But although Jesus raised three times the dead to life, this is far from the only time Jesus raised the dead. He didn't just raise the dead three times. He physically raised the dead three times. But he was involved in life-giving work far more than that. John chapter 5, verse 21 reads, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The context of John chapter 5 is spiritual life, not physical new life. So it's primarily not in John 5 speaking about physically dead people coming to physical life. It's talking about spiritually dead people coming to spiritual life, being made alive through Jesus Christ. And that work is the work of Jesus. Every Christian, if you're a Christian here today, just like the Christians that existed in Jesus' time on earth, our Christians are those who have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. 
How does this happen? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 helps us. It reads, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the God who created all things and the God who spoke and light existed, let there be light. And by his word, light came to be. And the light shone into the darkness. That same God chooses to shine light into dark hearts that are dead. You might think, well, what is that light that he shines? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light is the knowledge of the glory of God. So the light bulb goes on. Our spiritual eyes are opened. Our spiritual heart is enlightened to see the glory of God. We are given knowledge of the glory of God. Where once God seemed arbitrary, where once God seemed insignificant, where once God seemed something maybe to be studied, but then to be simply analyzed and walked away. Now he is seen as someone to rightly be worshipped. And more specifically, that light that he reveals to us is the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. God makes alive men and women who were dead. And this happens through the word of God, through Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God speaks to dead hearts through Jesus Christ and says, awaken, come alive. And guess what? Death has no power against this life. Jesus redeems life from the jaws of death, from the very core of death itself. And if you are a Christian this morning, that is your story. That is your song. And if you are a Christian this morning, this is the work that we are called to engage in. If you are a Christian, God not only has done this in your heart and life, but he now calls you to be a part of doing this in the hearts and lives of other people. And you might think, well, wait a minute, I have no power to raise the dead, to bring spiritual life out of spiritual death. And that is precisely true. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and the word of God is heard, the word of God goes out, the word of God is transmitted through the men and women of God who have gospel conversations and who read scripture with skeptics and who pray and who share the hope that is within us. We are called to be the ones who help speak the word of God, to transmit the voice of God so that through the instrument of our transmission of the voice of God, God comes and he calls to dead hearts and they come alive. Now this doesn't happen every time we share the gospel, but it happens every time that God wills to save those whom he has foreknown through, before the foundation of the world. So there's an integral part that we play as the children of God to speak the word of God that God might call dead hearts to life. 
there's another dimension to Jesus bringing this young man to life that I want to highlight before we move to our final point. I did a, a little bit of research this week, but I, admittedly not a lot. But as best I can tell, this young man is not still alive today. This may be shocking to you. You may be glad I didn't spend a lot of time and your tithe dollars researching a ridiculous question like that. But the reality is we all know this young man is no longer alive, right? He, he's not. He, Jesus raised him from dead to life, but his body was going to still decay each and every day as our bodies decay each and every day. And at some point in time after this, we're not told when, he died. But this resurrection power of Jesus to bring the death to life is simply an appetizer, a foreshadow. It not only points to the very real and concrete work that Jesus does spiritually to bring alive, spiritually dead hearts, but it also points to the day when Jesus Christ himself will return, when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, when the trump will resound and the Lord will descend. And scripture tells us that we who are dead in Christ will be made alive and will receive glorified bodies. Not like the body of this young man that was still going to decay, but a body that will never wear out and never decay and never sin. And forever we will be with Jesus Christ. And this is simply a foretaste of this hope. It's a demonstration of Jesus' power. So if, you're, if you want to ask the question, why did Jesus, of all the people, why did Jesus raise this young man back to life? And you could say, well, he had compassion on the widow, which is absolutely true, and a legitimate reason for why Jesus brought this young man back to life. You could also say he is demonstrating his power to bring dead people to life spiritually, dead hearts Jesus makes alive, and that is absolutely true. But it's equally true that Jesus is demonstrating his power because there is a day coming for all of us when we will receive new bodies. We will be glorified. And just as he had the power to do it, then the Jesus who is the same yesterday and today and forever has the power to do it then. Death is not too strong or not too big or not too mighty for him. It anchors our hope. It anchors our confidence that he is able. So we should read Luke chapter 7 and we should think this is the future for us all who are in Christ. I think Luke 7 is showing us that just as Jesus restored this boy to his mother, Jesus is restoring a world back to his father. Now, let me just say something that's a bit of outside the flow of where we're going. I just find this, found this intriguing. There'll be no extra charge for this. Let me take and do with it what you want. I do think it's interesting, though, in this text that we do not have recorded what this young man said. In fact, I, I did some research this week, and we don't have recorded at all in Scripture what anyone said who came back from the dead. No one that Jesus raised back to life has their words recorded for us in Scripture. You could think, well, that is just ironic. 
but I think it's because it's not important what they said and may only feed idle speculation about what death is like or the life hereafter or whatever outside of what God has already given us. In other words, my what I would submit to you is that Scripture contains everything we need to know about life and death and the life hereafter. And the reason we don't have for us recorded what the, this young man saw and what he experienced is because it's not important, which should be a cautionary tale in our 21st century when our Christian culture at large can be easily romanced by stories and books and tales of people who died, claimed to have died and gone to heaven and come back from life and to life, and we, we can be so enamored by that and want to know, and yet Scripture is completely silent, and this would have been a great example if it were important for us. I mean, all right, well, give us a whole book, right? He writes down what it was like, and now we have 67 books in our Bible instead of 66, but it didn't happen that way. All right, end of that part. You can do with that what you want. This leads us to our third and final point this morning, which I think is the most significant point, and that is the worship of God. The worship of God. How would you have responded if you were there? Here comes this teacher, this rabbi. He's got some folks following him. You're a part of this funeral procession. Maybe you know the deceased one. Or, as was common in the first century, maybe you were simply paid to be a mourner. But either way, you're there. This man comes. He touches He touches the stretcher, exposing himself to ceremonial defilement. But then rather than being defiled by the uncleanness of death, he actually raises the dead to life and does so not with any sort of kind of mystical hocus pocus by simply saying, come alive. How would you have responded? Verse 16, fear seized them all. Parentheses, I'm thinking, yeah, right? Of course. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people, and the report about him spread through all of Judea and the whole surrounding country. Fear seized them all. They were gripped by fear, and they began worshiping God. In fact, in the Bible, fear is a common response of finite people to the power of God. There's a weight here. They are reminded in this moment of the distance that exists between the truly natural and the truly supernatural. And in fact, this should be a, go a good reminder, church, of the weightiness of our joy every time the Lord brings a dead heart to life. And every time we someone stands up here and shares their testimony about how God brought them from spiritual death to spiritual life. And every time we celebrate that reality in the waters of baptism and we rejoice, there should also be a, a holy awe in our hearts. That there is a God who in love has sanctioned such a plan of salvation. Who has accomplished the salvation of all who believe. And they glorified God. There are two phrases here, two things that they say to express God's glory. The first is, a great prophet has arisen. 
So the people in Jesus' day looked forward to the time in which the great prophet would come. And if you remember back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry by going into the synagogue, by taking off the rack, the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and by opening it and finding the place that predicted, where Isaiah was predicting this great prophet who would come and the kinds of things that he would proclaim and the kinds of things that he would do. And then Jesus reads it and then essentially says to them, today's the day and I'm the man. That Jesus, the great prophet, has arrived. If you think about prophets in the Old Testament, some of the Some of the great ones like Elijah and Elisha, you might recall that in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah raised a young man back to life. And oh yeah, this young man happened to be an only child. And oh yeah, he happened to be the only child of a widowed mother. And then later in 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 8, Elisha raised a young man to life who oh yeah, happened to be the only son of a poor woman. And these were some of Israel's greatest prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And here Jesus brings back to life the only son of the widow from Nain. So there are so many parallels between these narratives. But what's most important are not the parallels, but how they differ. Because unlike Elijah, Jesus doesn't carry this boy away and then stretch himself out on the boy and then cry out to God three times. And like, unlike Elisha, Jesus doesn't pray and then lay on the boy, after which slowly he comes back to life. No, Jesus simply speaks and instantly new life is created. I think that there's enough consistency between these events to show the crowd and to show us that Jesus is the great prophet. But the differences show us that Jesus isn't just the great prophet. He is the prophet to end all prophets. He is the Messiah. He is God. Jesus doesn't just harness power from God like Elijah and Elisha. He demonstrates that he is God. And that's significant. The crowd recognized that Jesus was a great prophet, which is correct. But in light of the cross and the empty tomb, it is inadequate to acknowledge Jesus as a great prophet without also acknowledging that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The second phrase that they glorify God with is God has visited his people. God has visited his people, which kind of sounds like a strange phrase, but it's loaded with meaning scripturally. The prophets had said on several occasions that in the last days, God would visit his people. He would visit his people through the great prophet. In fact, if you think back to the early songs that we looked at in the book of Luke, sung by Mary and Zechariah and Simeon. In those songs, more than once, there was a statement that God, in the coming of Jesus, was visiting his people. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the crowd that day in Nain believed that God had come in the person of Jesus Christ. 
But it does mean that many in the crowd recognized that Jesus was being used of God to help them, to rescue them, to do something that was significant, that was utterly unlike anything they had experienced before. Something new was dawning through Jesus. And maybe this is why Jesus told this dear widow to not cry. Doesn't that seem like a weird thing to say to a a widow who has just lost her only son? Jesus comes up to her. He has compassion on her in verse 13. And he says to her, do not weep. Wait a minute, Jesus, I thought you had compassion. Maybe you should have weeped with her. Why did Jesus tell her not to weep? Jesus, throughout the Bible, we find him identifying with people who are suffering and mourning. Jesus himself weeped at the death of a friend. I would submit to you that perhaps the reason that Jesus tells this widow not to weep is because he is showing her how the promise of Luke 6.21 takes place. So in Luke 6.21, there's kind of this beatitude statement, and one of those says, and it's the same Greek word, weep, for cry, blessed are you who cry now, for you will laugh. In other words, blessed are you that even in the midst of your sorrow, one day your sorrow will be turned to laughter. It will be turned to joy. And I think Jesus is demonstrating to this woman and to the crowd, this is how your crying turns to joy. It will happen through the life-giving work of the Son of God. That life will spring out of the very jaws of death through the power of Jesus Christ alone. And in that work, in that great transformation, we who are made alive will forever celebrate and laugh and be filled with joy. So it points us to the work of Jesus Christ to spiritually save, and it also points us ahead to Jesus Christ's return when we will receive resurrected bodies. We will forever be with Jesus Christ. We will be gathered around the throne of God himself for all eternity, and our joy will be full because Psalm 16 tells us That in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. Nothing but joy. Brothers and sisters, this is incredibly good news. This is good news this morning if you are spiritually dead. Because you can be made alive. And I pray that even this morning throughout this sermon, that God would be opening up blind eyes, that he would be shining the light of the knowledge of the glory of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ into dark hearts this morning. And if that's you and you have questions or you want to talk more or you want to share that, you can find someone around you to share it with. You can find someone that you saw on the platform this morning. We would love to talk to you. This is incredibly also good news to those who are afraid to die, because it gives us hope. It reminds us that death does not have the final answer, that death is not the final state for all who believe, that there is a life coming, that for the Christian, the best is always in the future. This is good news for those of you who are grieving. In our church right now, that that is several. 
because it means that you will see your Christian loved ones again. This is good news for all of us who wait and hasten the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who long for that day, who feel the weight of sin and know of the word of Christ that makes dead people alive and who glorify God as we await his coming. Because we know that on that day, Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Yes, sin's effects are great, but the work of Christ is so much greater to the glory of God.